Okay, so this morning I'm going to tell two stories. Uh, they're not my stories, they're actually stories that Jesus himself told. And Jesus told a lot of stories, it was one of the, the main ways really that he taught uh, through parables. So he'd tell a story and then kind of uh, expand a little bit and, and um, to kind of teach through it. So we're going to look at a couple of the parables of Jesus. And the first one, Jesus told to uh, uh, a group who were with him, and these were a group of people who were very confident in themselves and in their own ability to perform, in their ability to keep the rules, or particularly in God's law. Uh, and they felt actually that they, uh, in terms of their standing before them and God, they were very confident in themselves. And so Jesus told this story about two individuals who went to pray, and particularly about the way that they prayed and what it was that they prayed. And in this story, uh, there were two men that went to the temple to pray. One of them was a Pharisee. A Pharisee was a part of the Jewish community, but really um, those who kind of were known for, for adhering to the law, uh, obeying uh, God's law, obeying and, and through obedience there and, and uh, following, um, kind of sticking with all the ceremonial side of things and, and really adhering to that. And the other person who went up to pray was a tax collector. And, uh, a tax collector at that time, they were very unpopular in, in society. They were known for being swindlers and cheats, extorting money, trying to get as much money out of people uh, as they could, often in unfair ways. And these two guys, they went up to the temple to pray. And uh, the, um, the, the Pharisee, he's kind of stood by himself and he stands before God. And his prayer went something like this. It said, I thank you, God, uh, that I am not like the other men. Oh, thank you, God. I'm not like the others. He said, I thank you that I'm not like those who extort people and cheat people for their own gain. He said, I'm not, I, I'm not like those unjust people who don't treat people fairly. And then he says, I fast twice a week. And I give away a share of everything that I have. And that's what this guy prayed before God. That was his prayer. Thank you, God, I'm not like them, I'm like this. Actually, he looks over at one point, and he, look, he looks to the tax collector, and he says, I thank you, I'm not like that tax collector over there. And then the tax collector, again, he's by himself, but he comes to pray, but he couldn't even lift his eyes to look to heaven. But his prayer was this. He said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's his prayer. Just very quickly, just with someone next to you, I want you to just quickly talk about some of the differences that we see in these two prayers. What are the differences between the prayer of the Pharisee and the prayer of the tax collector? And then we're going to get a bit of feedback and we'll see uh, what you think. So just very quickly, with someone near to you, what stood out to you in that? Okay, any thoughts that anyone has that they'd like to share on either of, the, either of these guys, the Pharisee or the tax collector, what stood out to you in terms of how they prayed? Anyone? Pharisee, yep. humility Brilliant. So we've got the self-righteousness of the Pharisee compared to the humility, kind of humble, not just humble posture, but humble prayer of the tax collector. Anyone with anything else? With, with the, the Pharisee, it's all about him. He keeps using the word, I, 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 I,
it's to God. It's directed Godward. Uh, yeah. Anyone else? Yeah. Fantastic. The Pharisee thought he was perfect, that he got it all right. The tax collector knew that was very much not the case for him. Lou. The um, first Pharisee. Yeah. Comparing himself to other people, whereas the the tax collector was comparing himself. Fantastic. Yeah, so the Pharisee, was, his prayer was all about comparing himself to other people. Wasn't the case for the tax collector. It was about him and God and where he stood before God, not where he stood before others. Fantastic. Anything else? We'd, fine, the Pharisee didn't ask God for any help. Yeah. Brilliant. The Pharisee didn't, ask, didn't actually ask God for anything, whereas the tax collector was. See, for the Pharisee, it was all about himself. He's, he's bragging. I don't know if you've heard this term going around with humble brag. This is not humble bragging. This is just him bragging about how well he'd done and all of his achievements. There's no thanksgiving in his prayer, except when it was focused on himself. Thank you, God, that this is what I am like. Thank you, God, that I am not like that. And what it seems like, uh, again, as has come through, his confidence lies in himself in what he has done and in what he continues to do. And it, it, to me, it seems he's not seeking anything for God. He's not praising God. He's seeking praise for himself, isn't he? God, recognize what I've done. What, recognize what I do. I deserve some recognition from you in that. Whereas the tax collector, as has already been said, there's a real humility about him. It's not so much focused. It is about himself, but it's in terms of um, very much focused on God with a very realistic view of who he is and of, what, of, of where he stands. It's a very simple prayer. And he's seeking God's mercy because he knows he needs God's mercy. The Pharisee didn't actually think he needed anything from God. He thought he'd, everything that he needed was found in himself. But the tax collector knows he needs God's mercy. God's mercy essentially being that he would be treated not in the way that he deserves, that he knew that his, that his life was deserving of. And Jesus, actually, when he, he tied this story up, he says to, to those who are with him, he says, um, where am I sorry, he says that actually that the tax collector, he was the one who went home justified rather than the other one. Because everyone who lifts, them, lifts themselves up will be humbled, but everyone who humbles themselves, God will lift up. You see, for the Pharisee, it was all about what was going on outside, all about the external, how he was perceived to be, what kind of appearance he gave off. But the tax collector knew it was about what was going on in, inside of him. If we jump to the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel 16, we see where the prophet Samuel, he's called to go and, and anoint the new king. Jesse brings his sons out, uh, and they see the first son, and Samuel's like, surely this is the guy. He looks the part. But God says, actually, that's not who I've chosen. He's not the one. Because God doesn't see us as man does. Man looks on the outward appearance, but where does God look? God looks at the heart. And so actually, what we're going to be thinking about today is how the gospel changes our hearts. And this story that we've just thought about really provides us with our starting point for this morning. As Mike said, this is the second in our new series uh, that we've called Good News. And it's based on, a, on a, a Bible study or a study called Gospel in Life, which is written by Timothy Keller and some others. 
And really the focus of this series is for us to think about how the gospel is lived out in all of life. So the gospel being the good news of what God has done through Christ's life, death and resurrection. And last week we started out really by laying out the scope of the gospel, if you were here. You might remember that if you've had a chance to catch up, uh, you would have heard that as well. How actually we can sometimes reduce the gospel to being solely about our personal relationship with God... And while that's very much a part of the gospel, the scope is much wider in that actually what Christ has done is to unite all things, everything that has been corrupted by sin, all of creation, to be united through him. And that's where we were last week. And we're now spending two weeks on how the gospel changes your heart. And for this week, our title for this morning is Three Ways to Live. Okay, we're going to be thinking about three ways to live. People can tend to think there are two ways to relate to God, if we're going to kind of break things down. We can follow him and to do his will, what we would understand as being a Christian, to follow him and to do his will, or to reject him and do your own thing. So we can kind of look at it, and there are two ways that you can relate to God, either to follow him and do his will, or to reject him and do your own thing. But actually, there are two ways to reject God as saviour. The first is just to decide, actually, either I don't believe in God, or I don't want anything to do with him, I don't want anything to do with his will, I'm going to reject him and I'm going to live my own way. But the second way is this, is actually to obey God's law, to be really righteous and moral, in order to earn your own salvation. And that, actually, is rejecting Jesus as your saviour. Even though it might feel like you're doing the right thing, It's about how you relate to God, but you're not accepting Jesus as Saviour. You're not accepting that good news of the Gospel. You're putting your hope in yourself, in being able to perform to such a standard that will make you good enough for God. And we saw that clearly in the first story, didn't we? The tax collector understood it, but the Pharisee did not. And he probably hadn't seen it like this, but he was actually rejecting God as his saviour. See, this isn't about disregarding God, but in fact it's looking to him, but ultimately their performance is, their performance is serving as, as their saviour. This is not good news. <laughs> I hope you recognise this. It is not good news to depend on yourself to make you good enough for God. In fact, that's terrible news. Because none of us can do it. And we see this in the second story I want to tell as well. This second story will often, maybe even in your Bibles, it's called The Prodigal Son. But as Tim Keller really helpfully points out, he says, actually, this is a story about a man with two sons. It's not just about one son, it is about two. And so we have this guy, he's got two sons. The youngest son comes up to him one day and says, all of that stuff that I was going to get from you when you die, in terms of my inheritance, I want that now. Can I have what is rightfully mine? And the father takes a few days, but the father gets everything together and he gives the son what he asks for. And this son, he goes off and he lives life however he wants to live it. And actually what we, see, what we see when we read about this story in the scriptures is that he just really was only focused on what brought himself pleasure, things for him to enjoy, not thinking about other people, definitely not thinking about God, definitely not thinking about his father. And he wastes everything that has been given to him. He squanders it all just on on futile living. And it gets to a point where the money runs out. He's spent everything that he's been given. It's all gone. 
And it's at a time where actually there's not much food around. It's a time of famine. And he's so desperate, he gets a job working on a pig farm, feeding the pigs. And he's so hungry, he's even considering eating the food that is being given to the pigs. He is at absolute rock bottom, from where he was to where he now is. And there's a moment where he kind of, he comes to his senses, and he realises this is not the life that I want to live. And he thinks to himself, actually, maybe... He's like, actually, that even those who serve in my father's house don't live like this. They have everything that they need. So if I go home and I come to my father and I say, I recognize that I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven. I know that I can't be, I don't deserve to be your son anymore, but at least let me come and work for you like one of your servants and be in your household as one of your servants. And so he gets this plan together and he starts to, to venture home. You can only imagine what that journey must have been like for him. As he's thinking about, how is this conversation going to go with my father? Is he actually going to accept me back in whatever capacity? Or will he tell me to, to go away, to recognize really the, the disrespect that I've shown him and the way that I've treated him? But even as he's far off, the father sees him. Which tells me that the father was looking for him. And as the father sees him, even while he's a long way off, the father doesn't wait for the son to come home. He runs out to meet his son. And he grabs hold of his son. And he kisses his son. And his son pours out everything that he wanted to say. I know I, I, I'm not deserving uh, of being a part of your house anymore. I'm not even deserving of being your son anymore. Please let me come and work for you. And the father calls to his servants and he says, bring out a robe to put on him. And bring out a ring to put on his finger. And bring out shoes that we can put on his feet. And then we're going to get the fattest calf we've got. And we're going to kill it. And we're going to cook it. And we're going to have a massive party. And we're going to celebrate. Because I thought my son was dead. And he's alive. And he is home. And that's what they do. And they throw this massive party. All of the household are there. All of the friends. All of the family are there to celebrate this son having returned home. That is far beyond what that son was hoping for, right? And yet this is the way that his father received him. But remember, there are two sons. The second son, he'd been out working in the fields. He'd been doing exactly what he was meant to be doing. He was working for his father. He was doing what needed to be done for the upkeep of their land and of their property. And he comes home from a hard day's work and he sees there's a party going on. He's not there, but there's a party going on. And he asks some of the servants, what is going on? And they explain what's happened. And what's his reaction, do you know? He's angry. He is so, so angry. This is not fair. It's not fair what has happened here. And he sits outside. I don't want to say he sulks, but he kind of does. He refuses to go in. There's this great party going on. And he's like, I'm not going in. I'm going to sit outside. I don't want to be a part of it. I've got a point to prove here. He doesn't go in to the father, but the father comes out to him. Just like he came to the first son, the father comes out to his second son. And he asks him what's going on. Why aren't you coming in to celebrate your brother being found? And he says, you've never done this for me. You've never taken the calf and, and killed it and cooked it so me and my friends can have a celebration. You've never done anything like this for me. It's not fair. I've, done, I've always obeyed you. I've done everything that I was meant to do. I've worked and done my part for you and for this family. And you've never given me anything for it. The father turns to the son and he says, actually, you're my son. Everything that I have, all of it is yours anyway. 
See, in the first son, we can see that first way of living, or that first way of relating to God, where there's obvious rejection. He's just living his life, his own way, doing whatever he wants to do. And maybe that's how we understand in terms of how can we relate to God. We either follow Jesus as Saviour or we don't. We either follow God's law or we don't. But then we have the second son. The second son wants what he feels he deserves. What he feels that he has earned. What he feels is rightly his. What his performance has, uh, has produced and what his performance demands. He doesn't want to share it with the, with the other son. Remember, half of, half of what was to be split between the two sons has gone. And now the father is saying, what is left? I'm going to share between the two of you. And the, son's like, the, other, the older son, are you with me so far? The older son is saying, I don't want to share what's left. That's mine. But yet you want to share it with, with, my son, with, with my brother. He doesn't deserve it, but I do. He doesn't recognize the mercy that his father is showing So can we see there's that other way to live? Doing all the right things, obeying the Father, being obedient to the Father, but ultimately relying on, this is what I have done, rather than recognising it's because of the fact that you are my Father, it's about what I have done. And then we have the Father in this story. I love this. He loves and pursues both of his sons. He goes after both of them, and he calls to bring them both in. See, he offers them a third way. He offers them both a way of grace. He offers them both a way of mercy. He offers them both a way that says, you're my sons. Everything that I have is yours anyway, regardless of what you've done. And even if you go off and you get it all completely wrong and you decide you don't want anything to do with me, actually you can still come and you can still be welcomed in. But to the other son, you don't, it's not about what you have done, it's about who you are. See, it's possible to know the gospel, but to live as our own hope and way to salvation. So I want to ask each one of us a question. I'm asking myself this question too. How are you living? If we're thinking about those three ways, how are you living? And I'm asking this question not to bring condemnation, but to bring freedom. Because that is what the gospel does. It brings freedom, not condemnation. You see, the determining factor in our relationship with God is not our past, but Christ's past. Okay? So it's not about what we've done. It's about what he has done. It's not about our past. It's about his past. It's not about our part that we've played in history. It's about his part that he has played in history. In Romans 3, this might come up on the screen. Uh, Romans 3, verse 21 says this. It says that now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who, put, who God puts forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So what Paul is saying to the Roman here, he's saying there's one way to the Father. All of us have sinned. 
All of us have got it wrong. All of us have felt we know better and actually we're going to live in ways that satisfy our desires rather than seeking for ways that will bring honour to God and to glorify Him. Looking to worship things that God has created rather than the one who created those things. So all of us have found ourselves in that place. But no matter how much we might strive and no matter how hard we might work and no matter how observant we are to God's law, we're all in the same place. The only way we can come to the Father is through Jesus. You see, we speak often, not just about the death and resurrection of Jesus, but also his life. And there's a reason why we speak about the life of Jesus and why the life of Jesus is so important. It's because, as these verses have just told us, is that the righteousness of Jesus, his life, the way that he relates to God and has always related to God, has now been given to us. It's not just that that slate has been wiped clean and that we've been forgiven. Last week we, shared, we looked at some verses in Ephesians which says that it was God's desire that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's what it means to be stood in the righteousness of Jesus. It means that we are now holy and blameless before God. Which means that we're not just not sinners anymore, but we're adopted as sons and daughters into his family. And it's only because of the righteousness of Jesus that's been given to us that means that we can, that we can do that. And so can you see why this is a problem? When we're, if we're trying to live our lives about, actually, I'm going to do what I can to earn my salvation, can you see why that's a problem? We're going to fall completely flat. Because there's only one way to be restored into God's family. There's only one way to be united to him. Not any righteousness that I have, but our hope is only found in the truth that Jesus has given to us what is his. His righteousness. A gift. We've inherited a gift. A free gift. Through faith. See, what the gospel means is that rather than being motivated by fear or insecurity, which can happen if we think it's dependent on how well I perform, we're fearful all the time. Am I doing it well enough? We're insecure. If I get it wrong, the consequences for this are going to be massive. It's that kind of thinking. And so we live our lives from a place of fear and from a place of insecurity because we're worried that it's not, we're not going to measure up. And we're worried that on that day that we stand before God, we don't know for sure what the outcome is going to be. Is he going to accept it? Is he going to reject it? So rather than being motivated by fear or insecurity, our motivation is actually based on grateful joy. We live our lives from that place. Doesn't that sound so much better <laughs> to you? Actually, the way we live our lives is motivated by grateful joy to God for what he has done for us through Jesus. See, rather than obeying to get things from God, which is the case if we think we're, we're obeying it in order to get something from him. That looks amazing. Good job. Look at that. That's the, this is the, the father and the prodigal son with his big arms to welcome, uh, welcome his son home. I'll keep that up here, I guess. Um, so rather than obeying to get things from God, we obey God to get God in as much as we obey him to delight in him and to resemble him. Can we see why this is such a big... I don't want to say a big deal. Why this is so important and absolutely fundamental. I saw a, a tweet the other day. I see many tweets most days, but I saw a tweet the other day that really grabbed my attention. I don't know the person who, who wrote it, but it was a lady called Lucy Crabtree. 
And she said that Jesus is kinder to you than you are to yourself. Rest in the goodness of Jesus. Rest in the goodness of Jesus. And I thought to myself, actually, isn't that what the gospel invites us into? But also what the gospel allows us to enter into. That we're not striving anymore. We're not having to achieve. We're not having to perform. We're not having to live up to certain levels. That's exhausting. <laughs> to live your life like that is absolutely exhausting. But God doesn't call us to, to exhaustion. He calls us to rest. He calls us to rest in the goodness of Jesus. We were singing a moment ago about the goodness of God. About his faithfulness to us. About his goodness to us. That is the good news of the gospel. We don't sing that song because of what we've done. We sing that song because of what Jesus has done for us and has given and offered to us. Last week, um, Pete, if you remember, during our time of worship, uh, he I'm pretty sure it was this. He led us to these verses in Matthew 11 where Jesus is speaking to a group who were around him and he said, Come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what Jesus promises. He doesn't say, bring me your best efforts, and then I'm going to grade them and mark them and we'll see how you get on. He says, actually, if you're feeling weary and you're feeling burdened by, by life, if you're feeling weary by the things that you're experiencing, if you're feeling weary by your own failures and just things that are going on in your heart, if you feel like that, come to me and I'm not going to give you a list of more things to do. I'm going to take those from you and I'm going to give you rest. So actually, to be a follower of Jesus, to live as Jesus is your saviour, is to live from a place of rest. This is good news. This is the good news of the gospel. Another tweet that I saw the other day, I'm going to share with you. Do, you. do you ever find, once you've got, you're either thinking about something, then you like see it everywhere, it's all over the place. There's a name for it, but um, there we go. Do it all the time. Like if you're looking for, oh no, I'm not going to do that, I'm getting distracted. But this, this tweet by a guy called Douglas Bursch, he says, make sure if you've deconstructed a legalistic conception of God, so essentially thinking about how we relate to God through, through law, making sure we have to get everything right, ticking all the boxes, doing it right. He says, make sure that if you've deconstructed a legalistic conception of God to also deconstruct the way you are parenting, make sure your parenting matches the grace you now walk in. That doesn't just relate to parenting. That relates to every aspect of our lives. The gospel, as is presented, not just through the word, but through Jesus, is not a legalistic. Does it, should not lead us to a list. Uh, sorry, to a, a legalistic conception of God, but actually to a grace-filled conception of God. Because if we have a legalistic conception of God, then how we relate to others and how we relate to every area of our life will work its way out from that. But actually, we're to make sure every area of our life matches the grace that we now walk in. What God has done for us should be not just our motivation, but our guide for how we are to live out every area of our lives. So not just in parenting, that's just something that he in particular was calling out, but in all things. 
See, you might have heard this word called sanctification. What sanctification means essentially is, is being changed, becoming more and more like Jesus. So in the moment we put our trust in Jesus, we're, we're right with God. His righteousness has been given to us. We're brought into God's family. Nothing will ever change that. God does not put a list of demands on us. We are free to live as sons and daughters. Like the father in the story said, everything that I have is yours. That's where we now stand. But, as all of us will recognize, there's still a process of becoming more and more like Jesus because we still get things wrong, sometimes horribly wrong, <laughs> in terms of how we love God and how we love others. But really, when we're talking about sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, is about having it is a reorientation to the gospel in all things. So how we relate to others, how we relate to God, about generosity, about all things, all of it needs to be reoriented to the gospel and worked out from there. Do you remember a few years, I going to say a few years ago, many years ago, there were these bands, that, uh, bands, not as in musical bands, but wristbands, that said WWJD, T-shirts, WWJD, all sorts of merchandise. It stood for what would Jesus do? It was really to get you thinking, actually, in, in the situations I find myself, what would Jesus do in these situations? But I think it's, um, it's more than that. Because, yes, Jesus is our, a teacher and he is our example. But actually, you can still believe that and still try and do everything on your own. I think it's more than just what would Jesus do, but what has Jesus done? Perhaps is, is of even greater importance. What has he done for us? What does the gospel mean for us? Last week, again, during worship, there was a song that we were singing. We were singing, I think it was, All who are thirsty, all who are weak, come to the fountain, drink from the stream of life, uh, pain and the sorrows be washed away in the waves of God's mercy. And we picked up, didn't we, last week on how actually it's not just a small measure thing. It's about going to a, to, to a vast measure. It's about resting in, being covered by waves. You wouldn't try and drink a wave, would you? That would just be daft. You, you just you go in it and the wave just does what it wants to do, essentially, doesn't it? You just have to kind of go in it. But we were thinking, actually, weren't we, about just resting and sitting and resting in God, in his grace, in his mercy, just soaking in that. And as I was thinking about that this week, I think really that, that's what, what, we're, what we're called to do when we're thinking about what does it mean to kind of be reoriented to the gospel in all things. It means, it means to, to, to sit in the gospel. It means to allow the gospel to shape us and to, to, change, to change us. It's the same sort of something that came to mind was like when you marinate food, you leave it to sit, to take on the flavours of what you put it in, not only, to not only in terms of to take on what it's in, but changes the texture of it, it softens it, it makes it more tender. And it's, we can maybe just maybe a helpful thing to keep in mind when we're thinking about what does it mean to rest in the gospel. We, just, we sit in it and we marinate in it and we allow it to change us and to shape us. That essentially the, the flavour of the gospel kind of works its way ever deeper into us. You see, the gospel is not an add-on. It's not an add-on. And I think if we're living our lives in a sense where we think it's all on us, it's almost like we, we've tried to add something on to our lives. But it's not. The gospel, we stay in it. We rest in it. 
we wrestle with it. <laughs> it's not passive. We, we have to wrestle with it, don't we? Because it makes us uncomfortable. Often it makes us uncomfortable because it challenges us. It challenges the way we think. It challenges our attitudes. It, it, attitudes. it challenges the way we relate to God, the way we relate to others, the way we view uh, money, the way we view politics, all things. And we have to wrestle with the gospel. But it's a good wrestling because it conforms us more and more to the likeness of Jesus. It reorients us more and more to the truth of the gospel. I love this. Tim Keller puts it like this in, in this study. He said, you must let the gospel argue with you. I thought that was great. You must let the gospel argue with you to persuade you, to bring you around. There are things that you will not want to give up, that you will struggle with. There are things that you will not want to be challenged in your life. But allow the gospel to argue with you. Work it out. Work it out. Work out your salvation. Work it out. Allow the gospel Come back to it. Don't let it stay as an add-on. Stay in it. Rest in it. Wrestle with it. Argue with it. Let the gospel teach you over time. Let it train you. Let it discipline you. Let it coach you. Keep coming back. Well, not keep coming back to it. Don't move away. (laughs) Don't move away from it. Stay in it. Stay in this good news of what Jesus has done for us. Let the gospel sink deeply into your heart until it changes your motivation and your views and your attitudes. I just want to finish with this and then I'll invite us to to pray. One of the things that Tim Keller brought out as I was kind of preparing and working through this this study and some of the resources that were there. When when he was talking about the story of the, the man with two sons, And we saw, didn't we, that the the older brother didn't want to share what was his. He didn't want to give up what he thought was his. He would probably have been very happy for the the younger brother to have stayed away. But Tim Keller just really helpfully draws this point that actually when we look to Jesus, we actually see see the true elder brother. The one who also delights with the father that the son is coming home. The son who rather than saying, I don't want to give up what is mine, he doesn't deserve it, but who freely says, you can have everything that I have. And just as I've been able to share everything that is yours, I want, I want my brother to come in and to share that with me. It's going to, and Jesus knew it was going to cost him. And actually really the cost that the, the younger brother deserves, the cost, the price that we deserve to pay, Jesus pays for it himself. He's the true elder brother. See, we're not an inconvenience to Jesus. We're not a nuisance to him. We didn't come along and and disrupt his relationship with the Father. Scripture tells us actually it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. Do you realise that when the Bible's talking about the joy that was set before him, you're a part of that. He endured the cross and everything that that involved. For you and for me. We're not, we're, we're not an inconvenience. We are far from an inconvenience. We're, we're joy to him. So actually as the true elder brother. He paid what needed to be paid. And he freely shares with us everything 
that he's enjoyed for eternity with the Father, he's now said, it, it's yours. It's wonderful. It's really, really wonderful. It is good news. And we need to ask ourselves that question, then how are we living? Because we might know the gospel. We might be able to really explain the gospel and articulate the gospel well. But actually, when we look on how we're living, if we take time to actually reflect on that and to consider that, maybe we'll see that there are areas in our life where maybe we're still striving. We're actually we're feel, we're still living from a place of fear and insecurity. Where maybe we're uh, seeking to be obedient to God because we want something from Him. Or maybe we're repenting of our sin out of a fear of what the consequence might be rather than because we're actually sorry for the sin itself. These are very different things and they can actually be very subtle and can creep in. And so it's good for us to do a bit of a check. Really, I love the word that Matt bought about doing that check on the vehicle when it comes up saying that there's no outstanding debt. Actually, it's right that we check in on ourselves. The reality is there is no outstanding debt. If you're in Jesus... There is no outstanding debt. So whenever you check yourself, that's dealt with. That's done. Jesus has done it for us. But still, we need to just make sure that there's not other ways that are creeping in. Because it can come in, and it can come in subtly. But as I said earlier, I'm not asking these questions to bring condemnation, but to bring freedom. Because actually, we can bring this to God, and we can say, actually, God, I've got things, I've got things wrong. Things have kind of slipped out of alignment. They need to be brought back but also to recognize, I need your help. God, I need your help. Will you just, through your Holy Spirit, would you just help me to live in the goodness, to, li- to live in the, in, in the goodness of Jesus rather than from being motivated by anything else? So I hope, I do, I hope each one of us leaves here this morning feeling encouraged. I really do. For some of us, that might mean in these moments to come it, just now as we bring things to a close. It just means doing a bit of business with God, if I can put it like that, and just bringing things before God. So maybe, let's just spend a, a, a moment just in you and God, just reflecting on where you're at. Maybe you're living in that first way that we spoke about, where actually you're, you're not following God. You know that. You're not interested in His will. And you just want to do your own thing. So actually, there's an invitation this morning to actually to be brought into God's family and to live not within a set of rules and regulations and constantly needing to achieve and to earn, but actually to live in freedom as sons and daughters. There's that invitation for you. Or maybe you are living your life where actually there is an element where you're depending on your own performance your own observance of what you know to be God's will to the extent where you're relying on yourself for your salvation. Maybe that's where you are at the minute. And again, maybe not in every area of life, but you might just recognize there are a few, few areas where actually I find it harder to trust God completely with this or I feel like actually I've still got to work hard in this. May I just encourage you to bring that before God, to apologise, to ask for his help in helping you to live a different way, to live a better way, to live the way that Jesus has, uh, has prepared for us. Maybe actually, 
you think uh, you're not living either of those two ways and you are living in the, in the goodness of Jesus and you're seeking to, to live a life that is pleasing to God flowing out of a joyful gratitude rather than from any other sense. Um, actually, just thank God for what he's done. Use this time to, to thank God for what he's done. But also just to ask for, for more of the Holy Spirit to help us day by day. Just to help us to keep living that way. Just to help us to keep delighting in the Father. To help us to keep delighting in the gospel. To help us to keep being changed day by day. Being shaped evermore. By the truth and the goodness of the gospel. So should we just take a moment. Just where you are.